Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Alfa Romeo Driver podcast, brought to you by the Alfa Romeo Owners Club. I'm Guy Swarbrick and this afternoon I have with me AROX Motorsport Coordinator and the Lancashire Section Secretary, Richard Merthyr. Good afternoon, Richard. Good afternoon. I think it'd be useful just to have a, a reminisce about your life in Alphas. So where did it start? What was the first car you owned? first Alfa I owned came courtesy of a guy I'd befriended when I worked in Coventry for a while in the late 60s, early 70s. It was a 1300 GT Junior that he'd bought to uh, replace a Saab that he'd had. And unfortunately, one of the Coventry Corporation buses decided to drive into the back of it, which didn't do it any good at all. He bought it back from the insurance and then decided he didn't fancy repairing it. So because uh, I'd always fancied the car, I bought it off him and did a, a very basic repair of just sort of jacking out the back wheel arches so it was roughly the right shape, hitting it with hammers so it didn't spring back and put a bit of filler on it. Because the beauty of the 105s, of course, is that anything backwards of, of where the rear suspension mounts is only useful for carrying the petrol tank. It doesn't do anything else. So, you know. <laughs> if it's still there. Uh, no, well, bear in mind, this was probably about 76 and it was a 71 car, so it wasn't that bad. My experience of written off Alphas is it tends to be the good ones. I had a completely rust-free Alphasford Sprint that got turned inside out <laughs> by a Toyota pickup truck. Oh, don't make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good little car, though, that 1300 GT Junior. It helped me learn how to handle a car because its road-holding was negligible, but its handling was superb. So, you know, it got very good at opposite locking and things. It was a good little car. So how long did you have that? Whew, it must have been about five or six years, but not as the main everyday car. A couple of years after I got it, I went to work down in London. And although I did take it down there, even in those days, you don't drive in London, tube into work and you know, maybe use it in the evening to go across London if I was visiting somebody. And eventually, a friend of mine back up in Lancashire decided that he'd written off, or I had written off, because somebody nicked it, a 1600 GT that he'd, he'd got. No, 1750 GT, sorry, if he'd got. He bought mine and stuffed the 1750 engine in it. By that time, I had an Alpha Sud, so... Tell, tell me about the Alpha Sud, because that was had a, had a unique feature in terms of your buying history, I think. Indeed, yes. The only new car I've ever owned. Bought in August, I think it was, 1979, T-Reg. It was a triumph of man maths, of course. I was, I was using as my commuting car from Lancashire to London and back an ex-police Ford Console GT, <laughs> 3-litre GT at the time and that time in 79 petrol prices were rocketing and it wasn't the most economical device man maths convinced me that i could justify buying a new sod on the savings it would make in fuel costs and it would pay for itself absolutely i'm not sure it did but i, I was happy with the uh, the deal and i sold the console on to somebody who uh, wanted something to tow a caravan but it was it was a good tow car. You had the Sud for a while, I think. Be about seven years I had it. It went from the, you know, my pride and joy, and you know, got washed every week and all this sort of thing, to doing a few rallies in it. And I ended up, I used it as a chase car when I was, one of my friends was doing the 85 RAC. I did chase car in it for that, which was hard work. But <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a great car. By the time I got rid of it, of course, it was rotten as a pear. By that time, it was only running a 1200cc engine because I'd had a cam belt go on it. Um, so I took the 1500 out and stuck a 1200 in just to keep me mobile. But I then started working some distance away and uh, again, economy was needed. So I'm afraid it was replaced by a Volkswagen Jetta diesel. Delightful. Slow. <laughs> so it was while you had the Sud, I think, that you um, you joined the Owners Club. How did that come about? I can't remember just watching. Now, I suppose I'm an, I had the interest in the uh, 
in Alphas from having the GT Junior. And of course, I was working in London at the time, didn't really have much to do in the evening, so I was no great sort of culture vulture. And of course, they held their meeting at the Steering Wheel Club in London. So I toddled along to that. I think I joined before I went, but it became very apparent that that meeting at least was uh, a fairly traditionalist thing. You know, when I mentioned I had an alpha sort of, the sort of daggers formed in the eyes until I said, and a GT Junior, and then I was sort of allowed through the door. <laughs> it didn't put me off. I didn't go back many times because it was a bit cliquey and I was still... You know, weekends when they would probably have been doing more social things. I was normally back up in Lancashire anyway. And I think at the same time that you're working in London, you've started in motorsport, is that right? Or was it before you moved to London? Oh, well before I went to London. I started in motorsport in about 73, 74. Basic club rallying, doing you know some 12 car rallies, doing a bit of navigating, and a few events in a Mark 1 Cortina, tipping it on its side on the odd occasion, things as you do. <laughs> Made some very good friends through that. Ended up, one of the guys I knew had on him, he'd started stage rolling with it and uh, persuaded me to go and navigate for him and we hit it off very well. He's the guy I still share the race car with now. <laughs> so that's an awful long time. <laughs> yeah, it's 47 years. Yeah, while I was working down in London, we had a really big accident in the in Wither Forest. Hit a what we call a 70-mile-an-hour tree stump, because that was the speed we were doing when we hit it. Lifted it out to the ground, ended up upside down 12 foot the other side of it. So after that, we decided perhaps having something other than a petrol tank in front of us was uh, a better idea. And uh, I was running the sud by that time, and I'd actually converted my mate to it. He bought a 1.25M, was it? The, the five-speed 1.2 engine one. So we, we both loved them. So while I was working down in London, I uh, browsed the uh, classified ads and things, as you do, and found someone selling a bent sun sprint. It had been T-boned. I went out to uh, have a look at it one evening. The bloke thought I'd got lost. I spent that much time down at the bottom of his garden. <laughs> well, I came back up and said, yeah, I think you're still here. <laughs> so uh, we did a deal on it. I trailered it back up north and we got a, a tame body man we had to uh, jig it out, do some scene welding while he was at it. And we, uh, we rallied that for a couple of years. And that was an excellent car on tarmac. Not so good on loose, right? But um, we built it as a 1300 class car, so we did the small 1300 engine 1286, uh, which meant we were against Mini Coopers and things. But on most events, unless it was a really, really well built Cooper and a very well driven one, we could have them, <laughs> which was very satisfying. <laughs> yeah, there was another sprint rally car in the 80s, wasn't there? Um, there were a few around, and there were quite a few sprint, uh, suds in road rally in particular. There were a few suds in uh, stage rallying, but they all suffered the same thing. They're not as good on the loose as on tarmac. Uh, yeah, the one I was thinking of had a Ferrari V8 in the back, which was... Ah, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of 6C replica, but with a... Yeah, yeah, well, that, that, that lad built some very, uh, very interesting cars. So you had the sud, and then I think the next one you went convertible. Yeah, did a, a deal with a mate of mine, of one of the guys we met through when we were rallying larders, of all things, a bunch of scouts and nutcases. This guy was a Liverpool docks copper, built like the proverbial brick uh, outhouse, but a great lad. He had the contacts on the docks for bringing cars in, so he'd got in the habit of going over to the States to buy vehicles and bringing them back, and one of the ones he brought back at one time was a Spider. So I fancied this, of course, and ended up doing him a deal whereby I got the Spider and a Citroen Visa, as a runabout, and uh, he got my Golf GTI, which I'd used and abused, of course. 
I had that spider for quite some time. I actually ended up swapping it to somebody for a Ginetta G15, which unfortunately got burnt out in a fire at my scrapula. But um, ah. so that, that's a whole new story. <laughs> Sometime later, I took a redundancy package from BT where I was working. And he was off over to the States doing a car buying trip again and suggested I go with him. But bearing in mind, this was the time when the pound was about $2 to the pound. So it was a good time to go to the States. I went over with him and another mate of his, Gary Biddy's co-driver, and we had a manic five days or so where all we seemed to do was drive around looking at cars. And on one of the trips, I found lurking in this warehouse in New York State a rather nice-looking spider. Unfortunately, my mate wanted that one, so he bought that. (laughs) And I I bought an imp. But then we found uh, in the classifieds up in top end of New York State another one, a doctor, I think, who only used it as his summer car. So we went up, looked at it. Yeah, good deal. Remember just what it was now, $2,750, I think it was. So I bought that. My mate had deals set up with a shipping company who'd ship it down to the docks to get it back. And he knew the agents, etc. So we did that. And then somehow I, I bought another one, which was a real wreck. It was a spares car, but that was a few hundred dollars. Very cheap. So I bought that as well. So I ended up bringing three cars back. Which went down very well when I told my lady when I got back. <laughs> <laughs> so we're about 16 years into your Alfa owning story now. You've had five cars plus a, a rally car at this point. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and, and then the numbers start to snowball. Well, I mean, I've still got the, uh, the spider that I bought in the States that uh, brought back it. That was 92 when I brought that back. I've still got that, though it hasn't been on the road for an awful long time. Broke down on me one day and got shoved in the garage, but it's only actually been out once since then, because there's always been another project around. I actually went for quite a long time without an Alfa as a road car, apart from the Spider, you know, as an everyday car. But then I, so about a year after buying it, I bought a scrapyard, which seemed a logical thing to do at the time, because what we were doing was looking at buying a sub-post office. But, you know, some, someday I just looked in the auto trader and there was this scrapyard advertised, and I mentioned it. Everybody I mentioned it to said, bloody sight, more your line of work than doing a flipping sub-post office. So I thought, oh. So I went off, looked at it, ended up doing a deal and bought it. So, of course, that let me into the world of salvage auctions and things, and then came across a 33... 1.7 engine 33 uh, sport wagon, which I couldn't really see what was wrong with it. Well, I still don't really know. When I bought it in the salvage auction, the main thing was the steering was awful. So I changed the top mounts on the front struts, and it was fine. So that was uh, my lady's car for quite a while until she came home one day and said, What's a fast alpha? I attempted to say all of them, but well, why? I said, Well, I was doing about 90 coming over the top, and this alpha went past me. How dare he? Didn't have a sort of V6y motif to it, did it? Oh, it so we went through a picture quiz and I basically got it down to being a 164. So I made the stupid mistake of saying, I suppose you want one. Yes. So I then sourced, again, through salvage auctions, one that had relatively mild front and rear end bump and tail ended and pushed into something, I think. Green one, which is unusual, dark green with a velour interior. Again, I got the same body man that I had in Accrington did the repairs for me. I, I bought a rear end from a salvage auction and we got the front bits that we needed. And that was a, a good car. Ran it for quite a while and the gearbox packed up and I couldn't get hold of a gearbox anywhere. So I ended up buying another car, which was the more traditional red over grey. 
but was they definitely didn't market one because it had alloy wheels, whereas the other one had it had steels. It also had leather interior, but unfortunately, the reason it was salvage was that it had been nicked. The nice thieves had cut the square alpha badges out of each of the leather seats. It was still as comfortable. It actually turned out to drive a lot better than the original one, so I ended up running that one. <laughs> and yeah, we've, we've always had an alpha around since then. And then 155, two litre 155, I think, which I bought off one of my customers. He'd been eyeing me for ages to get it, find him a door because he'd, he'd done the classic error of backing out of his garage with the door open and caught the door. But at the time, there weren't any 155s around in breakers. I couldn't find any anyway. So uh, in the end, I got fed up with him asking me to buy a, bit, buy a car so he could have bits. I ended up buying the car off him and then went out and found the bits to fix it. <laughs> That was the first twin cam I ever blew up, actually. <laughs> I didn't know about the cam belt change thing then, but uh, hey, didn't matter. There was always a little car. I had the cam belt go on a two-litre 155 the day before the warranty ran out. Oh, good timing. Or bad timing, but... but... <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't an alpha specialist breakers when you bought it, but it kind of became one, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was it morphed. I mean, I, I bought the... One of a series of yards were about three or four along the area where we were. And originally it was about an acre in size, probably 150 cars or so in there when I took it over. But it had been pretty run down. So I started buying what I thought was the right stock. Made a few mistakes, of course. But after a while, the yard next door closed down, basically because the guy who was managing it was ripping the owners off. Uh, that's another story. So I ended up taking that over. So I had a two-acre yard and... By the time it reached its peak, I had something like 700 cars in there. And I gradually, over time, started to increase the percentage of alphas, mainly because if I bought an alpha, it stayed with me until there was virtually nothing left. You know, yeah. I, would, I would never crush one just because I needed the space, you know, uh, which happened with other cars. The, the peak, just before I closed, I think it was something like 10% of the cars I had were alphas, so I had 70-odd in there. And you know, it was starting to become known for this you know people would travel quite some time to uh, to come and get bits from me uh, and i made some good friends again through that you know and of course i've got more involved in the club by that time and the um the the yards closed as you say but still not entirely out of the business no i don't i had so many things still around when i i came to close the yard when i closed it because the rates and rent were going up to a ridiculous amount this was mid-2000s and I was paying out in rent and rates a thousand pound a week before I opened the gates. You know, so it was. I decided I wasn't self-employed anymore. I was just working for the VAT man and my employees. Really, I found myself a, a small unit to buy, about seventeen hundred square foot unit, and kept everything I could uh, alpha related uh, when I moved into there. So I kept as much of the off-the-shelf spares as I got and as many salvageable cars or cars that had a good percentage of their bit and moved them into there. And I carried on running from there for four or five years until a, a minor health thing. I largely wound it up then, although then I did again take over another unit, which is a bit smaller. That's right, the first one was 7,000 square foot. The one I've got now is 1,700 square foot. I've got 10 cars or so in there and racks and racks of spares that I'll probably never sell, but every so often somebody comes and says, have you got? I've sent a, a 145 wiper motor off to a, a mate of mine in Liverpool this week. I've, so, I've kind of gone through your, your car owning and business career. Just like to go back and talk a little bit about the involvement with the club. So which came first, the involvement in running the motorsport side of the club or 
the board position or were the two the same same thing effectively? Well, I suppose I got more involved in the club. Think how long ago it was, dude? Over 10 years, I think. Somebody popped up, presumed it was on the forum, and said they were interested in restarting the Lancashire section. I'd been to a few of those Lancashire section meetings years back, but it did for reasons like most clubs, I suppose, somebody else enthusiasm and it dwindled and it had stopped working. Uh, so there was no active land section. So this guy said he was interested in getting it running again. So I thought that's a good idea. So I got in touch with him and between us, we knocked up a, a notice sort of seeing if anybody would be interested. My stepson at the time was running a pub in Worley. So I persuaded him that we could use his pub as a meeting point. It had a decent sized car park and we put... Uh, put this message out, and I got some about 30 or 40 people turned up for the inaugural meeting, which amazed me. Some of them came from way away. One guy, who's still a mate of mine, was uh, up in North Yorkshire, near Richmond. You know, he actually lost the exhaust off his 155 V6 on the way down. <laughs> you know, picked it up, threw it in the back, and carried on down, which made a lovely noise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, we decided there were enough people to get involved with it, so we uh, petitioned the board for, uh, could we do this? Um, we actually had the uh, the Yorkshire section came over to uh, help us get it set up, and we're, we're very helpful. You know, with that advice, we, we set up the, uh, the section, and I somehow managed to be conned into being section secretary. My partner in crime in setting it up, unfortunately, died a couple of years after that. Carried on ever since then, so it's not the busiest of sections, and I'm not the best of section secretaries, but, you know, we, we have a a small loyal band that covers a large area. I've kept it running ever since then. So it became more involved. Still got invited to, uh, well, went to a few of the, the general meetings, things to see what was happening. And then back, well, it must have been one over 10 years ago, but it's, I've been on the board about 10 years. It was the infamous uh, Peterborough uh, general meeting where the board suddenly expanded from being two people to being about 85 or something. Well, 20 plus and I was one of the ones I won't say elected because there weren't really any elections basically if you said you wanted to be on the board you were on the board so I got involved then and I've stuck with it since during which time of course we've whittled it down through a sort of natural selection people getting fed up or whatever uh, and we're down now down to about 10 of us uh, who work well together I think and have got our various relationship you know that we have that we cover well established. It's been interesting to see how we carry on over this period of COVID distancing. You know, we've had a couple of uh, meetings like this, this Zoom thing, of course. We communicate a fair amount you know, in between ourselves and on the management forum. So uh, I think we're doing a reasonable job of running it. But to actually revert to your question, I suppose, the motorsport side, I'd all, I'd carried on with involvement in motorsport, still am. Uh, I mean, I got... Uh, lured over to the uh, the funny roundy round thing rather than uh, the pure sport of rallying back in 2007 again the, the mate that i'd rallied with had been actually racing clan crusader for many years which is a sort of plastic bodied hill with him but it was getting harder and harder to stay competitive because the engines are getting fairly fragile so he'd uh, he ended up he bought my stepson's porsche 944 turbo and we turned that into a race car and then he started doing a race series which was mini enduro as they call it 40 minute races with a pit stop and he said, I'd better get my arts license, the racing license, because he didn't think he could drive for 40 minutes. <laughs> I thought, oh, well, all right. So I went along, did my arts course, 
well, didn't do a course, just went for the test, uh, which is easy enough. Uh, I will say, if you fail the arts test, then you shouldn't be let behind the wheel of anything. <laughs> One guy did actually fail the the, uh, the written bit of it, which takes some doing because they're uh, multiple choice answers. Only one is even vaguely possible, you know. <laughs> well, at least it was when I did it. Anyway, got this. So uh, then the learning curve began because I thought, okay, now um, what happens if I can't actually drive? Because <laughs> I've never driven a race car before. I knew I could drive briskly on the road and like everybody else, I think I'm wonderful. But I thought, well, how's it going to actually be? So uh, we went for a test day at Mallory. Um, with some trepidation. I got myself belted in and went off, came back in after a fair few laps. Looked at my mate and he looked at me and I said, well, he said, no, no, you're right. Your times are not so far off what I'd have been doing. So whew, thank heavens for that. So I thought, oh, okay, yeah, I'm a racing driver. <laughs> and then, of course, I did my first race. And I'd always been laughing at him saying, ah, racing drivers, easy peasy. You know, you go out there for 15 minutes and you think you are, you've worked hard. I don't know. I've done stages that are 30 odd miles long. You know. So I did my first race where I actually sat, was in for just over 20 minutes because he came in a bit early timed over to me and I literally crawled out of the car <laughs> at the end of it I just pushed the door open undid my belt and flopped over the, <laughs> the cage to get out I was absolutely mad I couldn't believe how much concentration you have to give it it gets a bit easier as you do it more but even so even now you know after 20 minutes, you know you've been working because it's just pure concentration. I'm always amazed at these Formula One drivers who can you know, take the time to have a look at their screen as they go past and re- read the positions and work out whatever else and have what, a discussion. Watch other drivers having battles on the TV as they go past. Yes, yeah. <laughs> me, I'm really impressed if I can keep track of one person in front of me and one behind me, you know. <laughs> So the races you do in the 75, are they all kind of mini-endurance sharing the driving? Uh, Pretty much, yeah. That's what the series we run with runs on that basis. And I almost always do the second half of the race. My mate loves the starts. He's very good at them. He often takes up two or three places off the start. I mean, the truism, of course, of this is that your real race challenge is to beat the guy you're sharing the car with, as ever in these things. Generally speaking, I'm a bit quicker, but he always reckons it's, uh, you know, because he's warmed the car up for me and everything's in perfect condition when I take over. Burn half the fuel off. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, he has to do that to compensate for my extra weight. (laughs) I I put it down to the fact that uh, I've got very slow reactions, so I don't break as quickly as he does. And on the odd occasion that he beats me, it's because he's worn everything out before I get in and the car's absolutely knackered. (laughs) Between us, we we have a good working relationship. It's always been the case, uh, in my experience in motorsport, if you share somebody else's car, you normally beat them, probably because you don't care as much about the car as they do. (laughs) I guess we're now a couple of weekends into the 2020 season, Um, but things are not quite back to normal, are they? Well, they're they're not back to normal, and they're not even everywhere. Yeah, two weekends in, a little bit more if you count the Formula One, of course, but they're a a bit of a law unto themselves, and at the moment, I don't think we talk much about Formula One, given Alpha's performance. (laughs) No, it's mixed. If you're racing at a, an MSVR, one of Mr. Palmer's circuits, they seem to have used their corporate power to organise things a bit differently insofar as visitors are allowed to a circuit. Not spectators, visitors, but only day visitors, no overnight camping, etc. And the paddock areas and the uh, pits area are out of bounds for visitors.
visitors, so it's only basically the racing bubble that's within there. I understand it's working fairly well from that point of view. I haven't been to any meetings myself yet, but reports um, from what I've seen online, you know, looking at the various YouTube things, the, the meetings themselves seem to go off well. The first weekend's meet, which included the 750 Motor Club one, which hosts uh, our ARCA series. Uh, it was a, a bit hesitant, I think we'd say. There, was, there were very short on marshals, I think, because it was being very careful on the number of marshals uh, allowed, which meant if there was any incident, it was almost certainly a safety car or a race stoppage. So it was all a bit iffy. With a bit more experience, uh, they've been able to you know, imp- increase the number of marshals. Motorsport UK have relaxed on that a bit. So I think things are, are going better. But obviously, as they all say, uh, everyone's learning how to operate in this new environment. For circuits that aren't motorsports, uh, Vision run, like Thruxton, where there was a fairly major meeting, the, the club that I normally race with last weekend, that was no spectators, stroke visitors, whatever, which apparently did produce a very odd atmosphere or lack of atmosphere. Although we're not used to huge crowds, in club racing it's nice to see a few people out on there and, you know the lack of anybody and of course they were restricted to the number of support people they could have in their own team uh it did make things odd and one of the great things about club motor racing is the crack as we call it uh you know the ability to have a good natter with your mate you go out for a meal the night before and all this sort of thing all that's a bit uh, bit curtailed at the moment but i think the the news about spectators being allowed at uh MSDR circuits came out fairly late. You had to book in advance. And of course, not being able to go in and natter to your mates who are racing in the paddock area takes away a lot of it for a lot of people. I know when I go to any club racing, it's normally because I know somebody who's there. You know, you like to go along, get involved, give them a hand if they need it, etc. Not being able to do that takes something away from it. And I think there's there's a couple of meetings in August where things look as though they, they're going to have to be radically different. I know at, um, at Thruxton, at their um, classic meeting, they're talking about having club presence in amongst the spectators and and obviously festival italia is is back up and running in some form at brand so presumably the arrangements are going to be slightly different there yeah it's it's really odd i mean all circuits uh, as far as i know i don't know about nocula check there but i think all circuits are now relaxing the no spectators given that general guidance is you know keep only a meter distance etc etc but i still don't really know how these you know club presence things and particularly festival italia are going to work at all it just it just seems very odd to me i would have kicked into touch but then i'm not a fan somebody organizing an event that's financially dependent on getting numbers of people in i still haven't heard incidentally for festival italia whether i had a ticket application in and it's still marked as pending as it happens don't think I'll be able to go because theoretically I should be racing at Snetterton myself. So that that was my next question. Actually, probably my last question was um, where where are you in terms of you getting back out on track? Well, the car's ready. The car's been ready for months because it's not my car. It's my partner in crime, Steve J. He's still a bit hesitant about going out and partly about the expense of because neither of us have actually renewed our race license so far this year because it all came in before we renewed it so there's the cost of that which is 100 quid or so there's the cost of sort of getting the tow barge back on the road etc getting out of saw and all this sort of stuff and Stetterton's a fair trek which is our first event. And if we don't do Sneston, there's only two more races in the year. Is it really worth it? Or should we save the money for you know a proper go next year? The only downside is, of course, we're both getting older. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we mentioned Festival Italia, which will be the second round in the the 750 MC Alfa Romeo Championship, as we're supposed to call it now. But there's quite a lot going on this year, isn't there? It's looking very encouraging. I was very pleased with the number of entries they got for the first round. Okay, one or two people didn't get out, and a few people sort of had teething issues, particularly the much-awaited Mito two-litre, the one done by Jamie Porter's uh, outfit. Uh, I mean, it was unfortunate in a way that the guy who'd been heavily involved in the development, Ted Pearson, wasn't able to take part for medical reasons. <laughs> Ricardo wasn't actually in the best of form, I understand, physically. But, oh, he had a bit of a uh, shoulder problem, I think. Yeah, but he did a grand job with the car. I mean, he was running very competitively in the second race before um, a fuel miscalculation that took him out. Uh, anyway, they retired from both the, the races, but the car certainly shows great potential. And I was uh, I was actually intrigued to see today on uh, Facebook uh, that Roger Evans has had his HC Julieta out for a shakedown at Donington, and it looks very impressive. And he says it very quick. So if he manages to get that out this year, that's certainly going to be something to watch. <laughs> Some of the new cars that were, were out other than the Mito, uh, Tom Hill's 3.2 GT looked pretty impressive as well. That looked a bit squirrely at times. Depending on how you've got it set up, I mean, the, the 3.2s, particularly the 147, were always a bit renowned for uh, torque steer and uh, interesting behaviour because there's a lot of power out of that and not much weight. So I would guess the, uh, the GT is probably even lighter, though obviously you had weight back in with the safety kit. And of course, it was first outing, everything else. It's a question of, have you got the suspension settings, the tyre pressures, et cetera, et cetera, just right? And talking of things like tyre pressures and setup, I haven't got the calendar to hand, but I think the, the last round is now early November, certainly late October. Yeah, um, how, How's that going to affect things? It's going to be like a winter test session. Yeah, I mean, this country, because it can be so variable, <laughs> you, can have, you can have snow in September, sort of thing, but or as we are about in March. It certainly will be different. It's not too bad for the, obviously, the base cars, not the TSs and whatever, because they're basically running road tyres. It's only when you get onto the, the vagaries of slicks and things like that that it makes more difference. It must be very difficult for people like Dave Messenger last year and Tom Hill this year, who changed from the TS to the modified or power trophy cars. And suddenly there's a whole new variable in there that you've maybe never raced on before. But I've never raced on anything other than road tyres. And I understand that from my experience with satin rally cars that have been on slicks, the, the difference in grip, it really takes a lot of adjusting. Thanks, Richard. Well, that's it for this week. In two weeks' time, we'll be talking to club chairman John Griffiths about his favourite subject, detailing. Uh, so get all of your sponges and buckets ready and we'll provide you with some good tips to get your car looking absolutely fantastic for the rest of the summer. As usual, episode 12 will be available from all good podcast sources, iTunes, YouTube, Podbean, Podcast Addict, available from 1.30 on the 9th of August. But until then, stay safe. <laughs>